The Missouri, she's a mighty river. Away, rolling river. The red man's camp lies on her borders. Away, we're bound away across the wide. Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, we will take a look at the final 100 pages, the final 25% of, of White Jacket, or The World and the Man of War by Herman Melville. So there's not much of a plot here to recap if you're, if you're just jumping in at this point. I do urge you to go back and listen to the previous episodes in my series on, on Herman Melville. But essentially what we have here is a novel a slightly fictionalized account of Melville's own time aboard a man of war some years earlier. And it's very much a very political novel describing the contradictions and tensions and arbitrary hierarchy and violence on board a naval ship. And we also then have him reflecting on the consequences of that for the broader, you know, broader life in the world, right? For him, it's a metaphor. It comes from the title, right? The world in a man of war. The man of war is a microcosm of the entire our entire world. And a lot of what he's interested in this novel are the different jobs people have, the different positions people have, and what kind of characters are drawn to different positions, the diversity of nobility, the diversity of courage, um, the pomp and ritual of the ruling classes versus the solidarity of the, the, the common sailor. All these things he thinks are reflections of, of the real, real life. Now, what, or I guess the man wars real life too, but life outside of the military. Now, in the final 25 chapters or so, the final 100 pages, we get um, a couple dramatic things that happen. Essentially, the, the ship is going back home from Rio de Janeiro during these chapters, and the novel ends with the naval ship back in the United States and the, and the crew departing and going their, their separate ways. The, the core, I guess, experience on that happens is I guess it's it's called the the massacre of the beards at some point and so all these sailors over the long months at sea had grown these long beards and they're about to to go back into their civilian life and they want to keep these beards it's a source of pride but it's against navy regula- regulation for them to have these beards so they the the captain orders them to all be shaved and most of them do but a few don't and they're flogged and this leads to almost a near mutiny on board the ship over this issue of, of shaving the beards of the sailors. And this allows Melville to do some final reflections on the violence on the ship. Also, a big thing that comes a lot, up a lot in this section of, of the novel are reflections on the, the articles of war, the code at the, at the sh- on the ship, the rules by which the naval ship is run and their origin and their nature. And then we also get to experience the death of one sailor due to, to illness and then his funeral and the aftermath of his, of his death. So I don't think I'm going to talk about every chapter, but I'm going to maybe talk about some of these in groups um, and highlight a few. Some I'll, some I'll just skip outright because they're not that interesting, but, but I'll kind of try to hit on all the main points that we get in the final parts of this novel. The, it opens, this section opens... I guess I'm the one dividing these sections, so I shouldn't quite say call it a section, but you know, 69 is where I'm going to start for this particular episode. And it begins with this kind of ritual among the officers where they're touching the caps of the officers. 
And it's all about kind of the dignity and the, the status and these how these rituals reinforce the hierarchy and the status of the of the officers. It's all really bizarre. There's actually a couple scenes that are rather bizarre in this part of the novel about this. And and one is this this touching of the caps by by the officers. And the last one to be touched at the end is the Commodore's cap. And it's all a bit odd. That's the end of this these ceremonies. Uh, this leads into a discussion really of the articles of law, the, the reading of the law, right? It's almost like an Old Testament kind of ritual in which you got Moses up there reading God's law to you. The, so there's a monthly muster before the captain. This happens on, on the ship. Every month you come up, it's almost like a, a parade kind of scene where they all, all 500 men on the ship line up and listen to the articles, the laws, you know, re, you know, it's a way to reinforce the hierarchy on the ship to remind this common sailors of who they are and where they are and what their position on the ship is. And they just go through this and read these. And Belleville points out that although there's not that many executions that take place on the ship, really, I don't think we, we see any. There's discussion of how people can die from punishment. But nevertheless, you know, not fulfilling these laws are punishable by death. And of course, there are articles of war, and then there's like regular discipline on the ship this ship's not during wartime so during wartime you know the penalties for some of these things are higher I mean, there's special you know articles of war that that go into effect but Melville can't help but think about how you know the punishment for most of these these quote-unquote crimes that are being read about are, are punishable by death right so at the end of the day the state in this case the captain has the authority to to kill the sailors pretty much for any reason they deem deem necessary so it's, it's pretty bleak um, so after we get a, a sense of these like i'll just give you an example of some of these these are just i guess right from the naval codes if any person in the navy shall make or attempt to make any munition assembly he shall by on conviction thereof the court-martial suffer death uh, no private in the Navy shall disobey the lawful orders of a superior officer or strike him or draw or offer to draw or raise any weapon against him while in the execution of duties in his office on pain of death. Any person in the Navy shall sleep upon his watch. He shall suffer death. I mean, even sleep. And Melville responds to this, murderous. But then in time of peace, they don't enforce these bloodthirsty laws. They do not indeed. What happened to those three men on board an American iron vessel a few years ago quite within your memory white jacket yea while you yourself were yet serving on board this very frigate the neversink what happened to those three americans white jacket those three men even as you who once were alive but are now are dead self suffered death those were the three words that hung those three men end quote so apparently even during peacetime these apply just for sleeping so not good but that's the law for you melville doesn't think much of the law it seems and he goes into the next chapter with talking about the origin of these laws. Where do they come from? And he at one point calls them a Turkish code to emphasize how violent they, they are, how brutal they are. Um, I don't know if that's fair to, to the Turks, but in the 19th century, it was common to call kind of Oriental despotism something, you know, Turkish. Um, now, the conclusion that Melville comes to is that they don't come from American traditions and American political traditions. They come instead from British naval traditions. And not not any British naval traditions, but specifically Stuart traditions. Now, if you know your history, this is when the British Navy started to really rise up. You know, before that, it was like the Spanish were the dominant navy in Europe. It's really under the Stuart kings that we start to see the British build up their their navy. So that's when these laws are really established and put down. 
And so it's it's not just British law, it's it's particularly Stuart law, Stuart King laws. So it's a foreign import. That's the point. It's it's not coming out of American traditions, and that's what bothers him so much. He he thinks that had American values created laws for naval vessels at sea, they would be very different, more democratic, more respecting of, of human life and human rights. But that's not what we got. We got this after, you know, 50 years after the American Revolution, we're stuck with these, these old ways of thought, right? And of course, a big theme in the American Renaissance, the literary movement, the American Renaissance of the mid-19th century was this question of how the British, like literature still is a burden for American thought and American uh, philosophy and writing and all that. Melville doesn't finish, though. He still has even more to say on these naval ordinances in Chapter 72. And here he really cares about just the overall hypocrisy of it, especially in contrast to American traditions. So, you know, I, I come from more like the anarchist point of view of, of law. Now, Melville doesn't. Melville does see a place for law, but he wants it to be more honest and more reflective of American values, at least on American naval ships. And his conclusion is this, in final reference to all that's been said in previous chapters, touching on severity and unusualness of the laws of the American Navy and a large authority vested in his commanding officers, be it here observed that White Jacket is not unaware of the fact that the responsibility of an officer commanding at sea, whether in the merchant servants or the national marine, is unparalleled by that of any other relation in which men may stand to man. Nor is he unmindful that both wisdom and humanity dictate that from the peculiarity of his position, a sea officer in command should be clothed with a degree of authority and discretion inadmissible in any matter ashore. But at the same time, those principles recognized by all writers on maritime law have undoubtedly furnished warrant for clothing modern sea commanders and naval court-martials with powers which exceed the due limits of reason and necessity. Nor is this the only incidence where right and salutary principles in themselves almost self-evidently and infallible have been advanced in justification for things, which in themselves are just as evidently wrong and pernicious. Be it here once and for all understood that no sentimental and theoretic, theoretic love for a common sailor nor romantic belief in his peculiar noble-heartedness and exaggerated generosity of disposition fictionally imputed, imputed to him in novels and no prevailing desire to gain the reputation of being his friend have actuated me to say anything I have said, end quote. Which is a nice addition at the end, right? Because he doesn't romanticize sailors at all in this book. In any of his writing, he really doesn't. It's not what he's about. It's not that these are glorious noble people. There is Jack Chase, but he's clearly, we're told again and again, an exception to the rule. The men on these ships are fearful. They're petty. They're, they cheat each other. They, they scam each other, they disobey orders, they're, you know, but they're just people, right? They're just folks, and they're Melville's friends, and they're the people he serves with, so he, he feels the need to defend their interests, and just because people aren't perfect, are not noble, doesn't mean they should be subject to arbitrary violence, and, you know, and flogged to death, and things like that. That, you know, that's what it's about, and I, I really appreciate his approach in this. So with, with the law out of the way, he gets back to some slices of life, uh, gambling. There's a really nice chapter, chapter 74, called The Main Top at Night, where we go back to the issue of storytelling, and we hear stories from sailors about you know, how they got on these ships, how, you know, other wars they served in. Some of these people had been impressed into the British Navy, and there was uh, discussions of the resistance to that. Um, 
you know, stories of the never sing from previous wars. So that that's that's good stuff. Um, I always like it when when Melville's talking, you know, talking about sailors, just telling stories and and reflecting on their own experiences. It's you know, it's part of how sailors passed the time, right? And it's part of how news spread and how people learn things. You know, that officers aren't really telling, teaching that much to to people about you know the way the world actually works that they get through interaction with with sailors. So that's a very important part of of the tale. This is carried on in page 75 called Sink, Burn, Destroy, where Jack Chase tells a story of war. Obviously, we're not, we don't have a ship at war. So we, we, you know, if you're here for an adventure story about, life, you know, about a naval vessel, you're not going to get that here. Um, instead, we got Jack Chase telling about a combat he was in. So that's the closest we get to kind of an action scene in the book. And that's his story from, from a previous war. Um, so the next major thing that happens in the novel, and this covers chapter 77 to 81, 82, is the death by sickness of one of White Jacket's, you know, comrades, I guess. Um, and just as before we heard about the amputation and the death of a sailor during the surgery, we were introduced to the surgeon. Here we're introduced to the hospital and we get a description of the sick bay and As much how you can imagine it, but they do have medicines. They're fairly well stocked as a naval vessel. And this is where the surgeon, of course, lives and works. But instead of describing it earlier during the amputation, he describes it here. Um, because it's, it's a less dramatic death that we're going to be facing here. It's, it's the slow waste from disease that's going to affect him. Um, so after being introduced to the hospital, which is where this man will die, the sick bay, we get the story that lets him. Now, the, the sailor who dies here, his name is is Shenley, right? He'd been sick for a while, right? And he actually blames White Jacket, the jacket, for his sickness, and he blames it on the bad luck. And once he starts getting sick, and once you know it's getting worse, you, you start to really worry, especially in these conditions. It's, it's you know, people die, died at sea of illness all the time. So to, you know, when the, it doesn't pass very quickly, the illness, and it starts setting in. You, you start to worry that you're going to die very quickly. That, that was life in the 19th century, before, before modern medicine, and before a lot of these things could be cured. And he starts to realize he's going to die, and he starts to rage out on White Jacket, blaming him for, for producing the bad luck that led to someone dying. Actually, it's, it's another guy, it's Priming, who blames White Jacket. It's not Chen Lin himself. But the, the news that he got sick, it leads to blaming White Jacket. Here's what Priming says. I knowed it, I knowed it. Blasty, I told you so, poor fellow, but damned ye, I knowed it. This comes of having 13 in the mess. I hope we aren't a dangerous men, poor Shenley, but blasted. It weren't till White Jacket there come in this mess that these things began. I don't believe there'll be any more than three of us left by the time we strike sounding men. But how do you know? Have you been down to see him on any of you? Damn you, Jonah. I don't see how you can sleep in your hammock knowing as you do that by making the odd number in the mess that you've been the death of one poor fellow and blasted Baldy and ruined Baldy for life. And here's poor Shenley killed up. Blast you in your jacket, say I. Um, now Melville doesn't fully, um, you know, show his total belief in it, but the narrator does, you know, also condemn the jacket at the end of the chapter. So, um, then we get the death at sea, and it's a very touching scene. It, Melville calls this chapter "How a Man at War Die, Man at War Man Die at Sea," and it's it's a pretty ignoble, it's a pretty pathetic death. He just gets sick, 
and another sailor is called to help cool him down and calm him and basically wait for him to die. I mean, that's it's not a dramatic death. It's not a wartime death. It's, you know, it's not, there's no glory in it. It's just you slowly waste away. You know you're going to die. It's this, this illness sets in and there's nothing the doctors can do. So it's all a pretty depressing, um, bleak scene with a little bit of horror in there where, where sailors have to kind of observe this. Chapter 80 uh, is part of this, this plot as well where we, where we meet some of the sailmakers gangs. These, these are people who are on the ship. Largely they're there as pensioners. It seems they're, they're older people who really can't do normal service, but they've been sailors on the Navy their entire life. So kind of in payment for this, they're given basically a sinecure job on the ship. And this job is, is sail making and sewing. And, and their job then is to take old sails or whatever and, and wrap up the body. And the last stitch refers to that final stitch. It's kind of a ritual they go through, the final stitch in which that seals the, the dead sailor into, their, into his, the coffin, essentially, for his burial at sea. Then we get in chapter 81 the burial of the men at war men, the, the actual funeral, and some of the, the words that are said over the body, and then the burial at sea. And that, that's just like a one page chapter. And what remains? He then has another one page chapter, 82, called What Remains of a Man of War's Man After His Burial at Sea. And what, le what we're left with is really the record of his death. We get the legal formalities, we get the paperwork. And, and that's, that's kind of the bleak reality of, of dying at sea. You know, people die all the time. Death has been fairly common in this book, actually. There was people who died during the practice exercises. We had the guy who got his leg cut off and died, and then we have um, Shenley dying. So, you know, it's a fairly common occurrence, pretty high, high death rate, a lot of risk involved in going on these ships. But, you know, the, what's left behind is, is kind of the paperwork, right? And... You know, I guess we could say that in a romantic way, you know, the memory of him will live on in the in the Never Sinks ledger and the, the memory of the sailors. But that's not true. These sailors come and go. They're, he's not going to be remembered, really. It's just, just, it's just the paperwork for the naval department to to keep track of that. It's it's so sad and so kind of um, pathetic. But that's that's the world we live in, right? You know, where. Deaths happen every day, and it's just like a. There's a bureaucracy. There's rules to be followed when people die, and sometimes that seems more important than than the actual mourning or understanding or remembering someone. What well, a theme that came up a lot in Redburn was how the actual training of young merchant sailors came from the crew itself. The officers didn't do much. Um, it's a little bit different on the Man of War, it seems, where we are talked about a Man of War college after Melville's done with this death scene. Um, he actually does sort of talk about this, actually, and say, like, well, people die and we just got to move on. So he reflects what kind of the bureaucrats on the ship would do when someone dies. It's, they do the funeral and then they move on after doing the paperwork. Melville does the same thing here. He says, in our Man of War world, life comes in one gangway and death goes overboard in the other. Under the man-of-war scourge, curses mixed with tears, and the sigh and the sob flourish, furnish the bass to the shrill octave of those who laugh to drown beneath grief of their own. Checkers were placed in the waist at the time of Shenley's burial, and as the body plunged, a player swept the board. The bubbles were hardly burst when all the hands were piped down by the bosun, and the old jests were heard again, as if Shenley himself were there to hear. This man-of-war life has not left me unhardened, but I cannot stop to weep over Shenley now. 
and it would be false to the life I depict. Wearing no mourning weeds, I resume the task of portraying our man of war world. And that's it. And then, you know, Shenley's not mentioned again in the book, as far as I know, as far as I could tell. And then we get to the Man of War College, which is where apprentices and young sailors were actually given like formal lessons and, and, and more. So there is some education going on there. I still get the feeling that most of the real meaningful education is coming from below decks and from the camaraderie of the, the sailors. But nevertheless, there are efforts to actually formally train these people to serve on the, on the military ship. So if that's comforting, I don't know. He even gives some examples of the lessons that take place. Um, and now we get to the big uh, climax of the novel, which is the, the great massacre of the beards. Um, now, the ship barbers are fascinating because it, it's, a, it's a profession that allows individuality, but it's also a profession in growing beards, wearing your hair out. These are ways that sailors pursue their own individuality and their own diversity. But at the same time, the barbers are enforcing naval rules about how people have to present themselves. So there's a conflict between the collective collectivity of it and this individualism. And as the ship, as the ship got closer and closer to port, sailors were preparing for life at, at home on land. And so they're cultivating their beards for that purpose. It's the 19th century, right? Men cared a lot about their, their beards. Um, but what we're leading to here is a mass shaving day. It's also a very skilled craft, uh, the barbers. They're, they're not just anybody's with a, with a knife or whatever. They, they are a skilled craft, but there were mass shaving days. So shaving wouldn't be every day. It would be maybe like once a week, everyone would do their shaving and there'd be a long line. But I just was interested in the tension between the individualism and the collectivity uh, involved because facial hair, length of hair were regulated by naval traditions and that goes back all the way to the ancient periods you know I think he mentioned Alexander the Great I, I know the Romans used to force the low-cut hair for soldiers because you didn't want to like someone to grab your hair and then cut your throat right he, he says Alexander the Great started doing this with his sailors where they couldn't wear a beard or a long hair because of that reason so that might be Chapter 85 is called The Great Massacre of the Beards. And so what happened was, as the ship got closer to docking back in America, the, the officer, the captain, Claret, realizes that it's going to make him look bad and it's going to make the ship look bad if everyone is there with big beards, none of which follow the regulations of, the, of naval discipline, right? So it's partially about his pride in his he doesn't really they're not at war right and it's just about how he's going to look to the admiral or whatever uh, if everyone gets off looking like hobos in his view so he gives this order that everyone has to shave down to naval discipline and melville can't help but talk about the hypocrisy of this and that there are officers who have beards too now they're, they're a little bit better at keeping within naval policy but still they have beards as well but it's the man it's the crew that's being shaved here and resistance emerges and and Mel even talks about this as the great rebellion of the beard and so they're saying well we need these beards for when we get off land and they protest and, and grumble about it eventually though the law wins out and the vast majority of the sailors you know subject themselves to the shaving as as the captain demanded however there are a few that don't uh, one of the that doesn't is a man named Old Ushant, and he's one of the he's like with Jack, he's like Jack Chase. He's an old 
experienced tar, but he's even older. And he's been around a long time, and he's a very devoted, serious salt. Um, and he refuses to do it. And, and he's basically brought before the captain to be flogged. And the captain says, are you going to change your mind or can we shave you? And he says, no, this is my beard. It's part of me. It's, it's mine. It's not necessary. We do it. Most everyone else shaved. I've been here for a long time. You should let me keep it. The captain says, you're in the brig. He sends him to the brig. Lets him sit there for a, a, week, a day, just a day. Takes him out, asks him again, and, and Ushant still refuses. And so they flog him. And it's, you can tell the captain doesn't want to flog this experienced sailor who really hasn't been doing anything too serious. But, you know, you have to, it's the law is the law, right? You have to follow the law. And then okay, one of the people who starts whipping him doesn't whip him very hard. And the captain gets angry at that and says, no, you got to give him the full force of the, of the lash. So eventually Ushant is, is flogged for not shaving. But the point Melville wants to make about all this is this became a, a real mutiny. This was a near mutiny on, on the ship. Not a, not a little thing. And it seems a silly thing, a ridiculous thing to mutiny over beards. But, you know, there it was. I, I wonder how many near mutinies they were. I, I came across some of these in long books when I was researching the Pacific uh, Sea Otter fur trade with China. And you would read these log books and you would, could tell there was something up that day because most days the log book just on those merchant ships just had, um, you know, a few lines, the weather, how far they traveled, whatever. But once in a while you'd get this really long entry, so you'd want to read those carefully because they're usually interesting. And often it would be like, you know, four sailors came and confronted the first mate on some issue and there's a lot of grumbling and eventually they back down, right? There's a, you know, this could have been, you know, in a different world or in a slightly different circumstance, maybe exploded into mutiny, right? That there's, for every mutiny there is, there's probably hundreds and hundreds of near mutinies or mutinies that, that could have developed, uh, given a different captain or given a different officer corps or whatever. In this case, you had it, and it's just a fascinating um, expose of, of, of the fragility of social order on, on board a, a ship like this. So with this out of the way, Melville gets back to being overtly political. He starts with the return to the issue of flogging, and he talks about flogging through the fleet. This is kind of what it sounds like. This is a special kind of punishment. It can only be administered by a court's marshal. can't be administered just by a captain on his own. There's actually a limit of how many times you can flog a sailor, although it doesn't really matter. So the, the limit's like 100 lashes per offense. But if a... It, you know, a captain can always say, well, there was three offenses there, and so it's 300 lashes, you know, if they wanted to. And by that point, it gets really life-threatening when you start um, flogging people that severely. Flogging throughout this uh, the fleet is a serious threat to one's life. This is where someone will be flogged on different ships for the same offense to maximize the number of, of, of lashes they would get, right? Because if your offense, it's capped out at 100, maybe they don't want to execute you, but they don't want to severely punish you. You'll be taken from ship to ship in the fleet and you'll be a, the full punishment will be inflicted on each one. I think that's how it works. That seems to be how it, it's described here. But anyways, a sailor will be whipped in one place, sent to maybe recover for a while and then sent to another ship. Sometimes this punishment will take months and months as a surgeon will observe the sailor until 
you know, he can't take any more hits, and then he would be taken to be recovered, maybe for two or three weeks, and then brought back up to be flogged somewhere. So it's it's pretty gruesome stuff. And Melville t- even talks about other punishments that were used to be used in fleets, but maybe aren't anymore, and how this isn't that much better. He talks about like keel hauling. That's where sailors would be tied to ropes and thrown overboard, so they'd be their skin would be ripped up by barnacles um, as they banged against the side of the ship. Um, but that's flogging throughout the fleet, a very special punishment. Um, I'm not sure if Melville observed it, but he, he talks about it here. Generally, in chapter 89, we're getting really towards the end of the novel here. He has a chapter called The Social State on the Man of War. And this is something about really uh, the discipline and divisions on the ship among the common people. One major division is between the Marines and everyone else. So the Neversink had around 50 Marines on it. And the Marines, when they're useful during war, but they're not really useful otherwise, so they just sort of sit around. But they become a bit like the police on the, on the, on the ship. And they are able to simply, they, they kind of protect, they serve the captain, they do policing jobs, and they become in this way the enemies of, of the common sailors. Uh, so they're, they're spending a lot of time guarding other sailors as well. And then Melville gets to basically talk about the factions, the hatreds, the tensions that run throughout the, the entire ship. Uh, quote, these things are undoubtedly heightened by the close combining and confinement of so many mortals in one oaken box on the sea. Like pairs closely packed, the crowded crew mutually decay through close contact, and every plague spot is contagious. Still more from this same close confinement, so far as it affects the common sa- sailors, arise other evils, so di- di- directful that they will hardly bear even so much as an illusion. What too many seamen are when ashore is well known, but what some of them become when completely cut off from these shore indulgences can hardly be imagined by landsmen. The sins for which the cities on the plains were overthrown still linger in some of these wood-walled Gomorrahs of the deep. More than once, complaints were made on the mast of the Never Sink, from which a deck officer would turn away with loathing and refuse to hear them and command the complaint out of sight. These are evils in men of war, which, like the suppressed domestic drama of Horace Walpole, will never bear representing or reading and will hardly bear thinking about. And cool. So I don't know. Uh, think what you want about, about that passage. But... Um, certainly there's some sexual undertones hinted at there but by and large you know he's it's just these kind of this this is a strong social order but it breaks down into kind of mutual antagonism i almost get this want to make this anarchist argument that the bottom-up order is better and when you have a bottom-up order in conflict with a top-down that that's when you get factionalism and violence and things so i don't know it bears thinking about that's a chapter that's worth coming back to a little more detail. Chapter 90 is, is again, more overtly political. It's, it's about the manning of the navies. And here the major concern is why there's so many foreigners on this ship. It's because no one wants to serve on these naval ships, so people are recruited from wherever they can be gotten. The British who can't get sailors are, are impressing people. You know, people in the merchant marine are just on ports, in ports. They're just basically forcing them to fight on their ships. And other people who join the the Navy are people who maybe have nothing really to do with their lives and just want the free grog and, and just want to waste their time. Other people are really poor and desperate. So the conclusion Melville comes to is, quote, fine tars are a minority, unquote. Now, we do have 
old Ushant and Jack Chase as examples of of the fine tars, right? White Jacket himself is not bad. He's just not particularly like an experienced sailor in the way others are. So he does his duty, but but he's not particularly noteworthy in his kind of honor. Melville, Melville here really wants to attack the romanticism of sailors. This, this thing that comes through in novels of sailors being brave and noble and, and courageous and, and, and all this. This he has no real time for. He, sailors are just a random sampling of people from the land and not necessarily the best sampling of people. Now, often people with a lot of flaws and, and, and weaknesses and failures of character. He gives the story of a guy named Landless who's a very happy-go-lucky guy, and he's an example of another kind of person who serves on these, these ships. Now, he certainly thinks it's possible to have nobility among sailors, because that's why Jack Chase is such a prominent character in this, in this book. But I think he, he wants a ship that more reflects the virtues of, of, of America, or the ideals, right? Now, the, what, the man of war is a reflection of the world, so you're never going to get pure nobility and something that's a reflection of the world, right? It's just a, it's a model of that. But he does think there's a hypocrisy here. And I, I think that hypocrisy he probably thinks applies to the United States itself with, with its high ideals and its deep contradictions of class and status and, and, and violence, you know, on the land. You know, one almost wants to, to, to extend slavery to this. He doesn't really say much about slavery Directly, I mean, there's a few black characters, and, and, and in the Manning of the ship chapter, he does talk about how slaves were sometimes forced to serve on ships, but it's there's not much on that. But in a way, you a lot of the stuff you see could apply to, uh, you know, like the old South too, where you have that aristocratic class, and here you have the officer corps, which are kind of aristocrats, and it'd be interesting to kind of dig dig in a little bit more and see if there's any points of contrast there, especially the use of, of flogging. You know, running away as being something punishable, the kind of the arbitrariness of the law, uh, and how the law defends the hierarchy instead of the people. Yeah, certainly these these weren't slaves by and large. So we, there's limits to how far we can push this. But um, you know, Melville at one point does say, you know, I'm talking here about black slaves, not nothing about white slaves, as if white slavery is a, th- a thing. Um, so I don't know. There's there's always that problem of of white people using the term slavery to refer to their own situation right white like wage slavery was a good example of that but anyway i don't want to get too much into this rabbit hole but just open it up that i I think there's stuff to talk about in in regards to you know the institutions of power in different places and and if melville really wants this novel to be a reflection of the overall world it's worth thinking about that all right so moving on chapter 91 is about smoking and this is a really nice chapter about you know Men just smoking together and, and kind of living their lives and enjoying each other's company you know, via smoking. Smoking is a very social ritual and experience. I know everyone is down on smoking nowadays, and it is not good for you, I suppose. But you know, it's it's still good. I think that's that that social aspect to it. I mean, people still smoke together. I'm sure young people when they start smoking, they're 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 smoking because they're with friends, right? They're not you know at home doing it. 
So the, the talking about the smoking club here is interesting, too, because it also shows the tension between kind of a common solidarity and, and a common collective experience among the sailors. And then this is something that then gets regulated by the captains and the officers who regulate when you can smoke. There's certain times of day and certain moments when you can smoke. And Melville, who's pretty, you know, he doesn't really confront the officers that much. He, at least not openly in the book, he he's writing about them after the fact, right? He's not confronting them directly but this is one of the points where you really see he's really pissed off at the captains kind of um, pretty directly that they're limiting the time that he can he can smoke and enjoy himself um the character of smoking here though is is described let me find it um okay by what was still more surprising, intended to impart a new and strange insight into the character of sailors and overthrow some long-established idea concerning them as a class was this. Numbers of men who during the cruise had passed for exceedingly prudent, nay, parsimonious persons, who would even refuse you a patch or needful a thread, and from other stinginess procure the name Ravelings. No sooner were these men fairly adrift in harbor and under the influence of frequent quaffings that their three years concerned wages flew right, left and right, they summoned overboarding houses of sailors to the bar and treated them over and over again. Fine fellows, generous-hearted tars. Seeing this sight, I thought to myself, well, these generous-hearted tars on shore were the greatest curmudgeons afloat. It's the bottle that's generous, not they. Yet the popular conceit concerning the sailors derived from its behavior ashore. Whereas ashore, he is no longer a sailor, but a landsman for a time. A man of war's man is only a man of war man's at sea, and the sea is a place to learn what he is. But we have seen that the man of war is but this old-fashioned world of ours afloat, full of all manners of characters, full of strange contradictions, and through though boasting some of the fine fellows here and there, yet on the whole charge their comings and their hatchways with the spirit of Belial and all right, unrighteousness. Hmm, that's nice. That's kind of a conclusion about his, his feelings about the sailors. But he ends it on a chapter about sailors smoking together, and, and that's it being kind of a collective experience that they enjoy away from the gaze of, of the officers. So I don't know what to make of that. I mean, he seems to be suggesting that the generosity is something that, that exists on the land, not, not at the sea or comes as a result of, of, of drink. But just before that, he was talking about a more collective experience of, of smoking. All right. Um, getting towards the end here, we get the fate of the jacket, the white jacket, the titular white jacket. And what happened is one last time, the jacket almost kills him. There's like a blow and... The jacket gets over his head. He thinks it's a sail that's gotten over him, and he tries to get free of it, and he ends up falling overboard. He gets escaped from the jacket. The jacket sinks, and he's eventually saved and rescued. So he almost was killed by the jacket is the thing. So clearly it's bad luck, and it's, we've been reminded of that again and again, and it's sort of proven in the final chapter. Um, and then they, they get home. And Melville includes in the final pages a chapter called The End, where he reflects on his overall theme that the man of war is is something we're all on right the earth is a man of war is what he says and the planets in the universe are are the navy and all the things that he's described whether it's illiberal laws whether it's arbitrary hierarchy pomp and the pomp of the of the ruling class the divisions among the working people the the arbit you know the arbitrariness of death the fact that some of us are going to die of sickness or injury or war at any one point. The, the fact that we're all of a different levels of nobility, yet we all have some kind of common humanity. All of this stuff is reflected on in the final two pages of the book. 
wherein we're, we're told straight up directly, if you haven't already figured it out, that Melville's not telling us a story about simply a man of war, but rather he's telling us a story about life as a whole. So that, that's White Jacket. Um, it combines really nicely with Redburn. I, I think Redburn is a, it's, it's a more focused novel really on kind of the circuits of capitalism and the experiences of one young man in them. White Jacket is, is both more narrow in that it's just focusing on you know, the life on a ship when not much happens. But it's also grander in that it's trying to extend this more consciously to the broader world. That's not something you see in Redburn. You don't have that kind of broader philosophical reflection on the nature of, of life as a whole uh, in, in Redburn the way you do in White Jacket. So that's, uh, I think, something that makes that novel interesting. I, I, I warn you, not, don't read this for an adventure. Don't read it even for just about a uh, naval ship, unless you like that. If you want to know life on a 19th century naval ship, I think there's something you could learn about it here. I say go for, go for what Melville's trying to go for. And, you know, Melville tried to do this with Marty. He, he told two kind of adventure tales in Taipei and Omu that were popular he tries in Marty to tell the story of the world, and he failed at that. Most people think he failed at that. I like that novel. I talked about it very early in this podcast. I, I really appreciate what he was trying to do in that novel. But, yeah, it, it, it was not liked by, by the people, certainly. So when he came back after writing Marty to Redburn and White Jacket, trying to tell more grounded you know, autobiographical accounts of merchant ships and, and, and sailing ships or, or warships, you know, he tries to just be more of a reporter. Yet by White Jacket, you see he's itching to tell a broader story. He's trying to tell the story of, of our existence and our life. He's trying to be a philosopher. And he can't fully do that yet because of the market. And he wants to want to, this book is still going to be marketed as, you know, what it's like on a naval ship, you know. Live vicariously through, through Melville. Yet that he, I think he, he builds up his courage in this novel almost to, to do Moby Dick and to actually once again try to tell the broader tale about, you know, try to let his imagination fully released and, and really get, you know, you know, do the real, or tell the real medical, metaphoric voyage of life. And he does that in Moby Dick, obviously. He does many other things in that novel. It's a wonderful novel, and that's where we'll be taken next. I'll have, in the next weeks, a six-part coverage of, of my thoughts on Moby Dick. And, and, of course, this is the novel that's been written about by thousands of people over the years. So I'm just going to be one small voice in that, but I'll give you my reflections on, on this novel. It's a novel I love, obviously. So I'll... I'll I'll do that next. So um, thanks for expo uh, taking this journey with me through White Jacket or The World in a Man of War. I really enjoyed it. It's been a while since I read this novel, and it's, it's one I usually don't pine to, you know, go back to. I don't think about going back to when I go to Melville. It's always like Taipei or Omu or Maui Dick that I go back to. I, you know, but I think now there's a lot more here than I originally thought, to be, be sure. Um, so that's it. That's that's my thoughts on White Jacket. Um, if you have your own, please leave them below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, and that's it. I'm going to sign off and I'll be back shortly with my thoughts on the first part of, of Moby Dick. 
At last there came a Yankee skipper away. Flipper 